Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Hi, this is Steve Harganon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is Tuesday, November 2nd, 2010, and Vicki Abeles is here, the director of Race to Nowhere. Vicki, welcome. Thank you, Steve. Did I say your name correctly? Abeles? I think so. You got the good <laughs> one. I didn't hear Abeles. <laughs> oh, good. Hey, you were going to come on before, and your daughter was sick. Is everything better? Oh, yeah. Everything's great. Thank you. I think those of us who've watched the movie feel a little bit like we know your kids and care about them. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And, and they're doing really well, Steve. Oh, good. We'll get to that. So the Future of Education is sponsored by Illuminate My Employer. The project I work on is Learn Central. It's the social network for educators that is free, that has Illuminate baked in. We sure hope you'll come and use it and take advantage of those technologies. The Future of Education is also sponsored for October November by Redo, a program from Bing at Microsoft. They're paying my book budget, and we really appreciate it. And we want to make sure that everybody's aware of the Global Education Conference coming up. It's hard for me not to be super excited about this. Five days. It looks like we'll have 350 sessions. And if somebody's still hearing the playlist, which it sounds like maybe you are, you may want to log out and log back in again. That shouldn't be happening. Um, 350 sessions. Uh, over 20 keynotes, uh, 90 partner organizations, uh, 120 educational advisors from around the world. This should just be a groundbreaking event if we can survive it. Anyway, it should be a lot of fun. I sure hope that you'll come to globaleducationconference.com and join us. Coming up on the Future of Education Thursday, Stephen Farr from uh, Teach for America on his book, Leadership. I don't have it in front of me. I can't remember. It's leader, le teaching as leadership. should be very interesting to talk to Stephen, especially because uh, Teach for America has a little bit of a mixed reputation, and, and interesting to hear their side of the story. Uh, next week, uh, Tony Krasnick is actually canceled. He's going to be part of the Global EdCon, but you can see the rest of the schedule there. Lots of fun coming up. Very excited about having Alfie Cohn on board, and I think um, uh, Vicky, if Vicky knows Alfie, she'll agree. It should be a very interesting show. Uh, and you can see the other guests there as well. A special show tomorrow that's not on this list uh, that is at futureofeducation.com. It's sort of a late edition. It is a panel discussion tomorrow uh, from, the Finnish and, from a Finnish and American joint community about transforming learning. Um, it is at 8 o'clock Pacific time, 11 o'clock Eastern. It is on the website. Uh, and I will put a link into the chat here for those of you who'd be interested. But uh, this should be fascinating, especially because we've been talking about Finland so much as a part of the series. If you've missed the show, they are all recorded and up on the site. Clarence Fisher um, last week, Diane Ravitch, and you can see the, the long list there. Hopefully there's somebody there that interests you. Now, uh, this is a participative environment. Vicky's coming in through the telephone, so she can't see the chat. But when you do have a question, I'll try and capture those and pass them on to her. Uh, if I've missed a question, when we go to the Q&A towards the end of the show, please repost it. There are a variety of ways in which you can participate, the first of which is that little smiley face or the clapping hand. We can all clap for Vicki now, and I'll let her know that you're clapping. It lives you at the bottom of the participant window. There's also a hand with a green up arrow, and that hand allows you to raise your hand, and we'll give you the microphone when it's uh, Q&A time. If you do want to ask a question to Vicki through the microphone, please do be sure to go up to Tools Audio and run the Audio Setup Wizard. Um, there are You can put uh, questions or comments in the chat. Please try and keep those on topic if you can. Uh, it can distract other listeners if you're talking about something that's not related to the show. And I'm now going to give you a chance to participate actively by letting us know where you're listening from. So look for the wand with the red star at the end to the left of the map. Click on that and click on the map. And you can also put in the chat um, your location, maybe what time it is. Looks like we have New Zealand tuned in, Japan, lots of North America, Hawaii, Australia. 
I'll tell you what's been really fun is this Global Education Conference setting up all the time zones. Uh, it's worth going to the website just to see the complexity of the sessions in the time zones. A, a lot of fun there. So Vicki, you have a good crowd here uh, from all over the world and all over the states and Canada. Um, and this is fascinating timing. Uh, because we did a show after Education Nation and sort of specifically looking at some of the themes that have come out in Waiting for Superman. And I will tell you uh, in a moment of candor here, the people from Waiting for Superman contacted me about six months ago and asked me if I would uh, work with them on some ideas. And I never heard back from them. They emailed me back last week and asked if I was still interested. And I pointed them to some of the shows that I'd done that were sort of direct contradictions to their material. And they haven't called me back. Right. So uh, I'm very curious <laughs> to know, uh, because at least uh, among some of the more vocal guests on the show, there have been some feelings about Education Nation and about Waiting for Superman uh, where they felt like the portrayal wasn't fully accurate. How are people responding to Race to Nowhere? And, and how are you feeling about that larger dialogue? Right. Well, I think people are responding really well to Race to Nowhere. And so our typical situation, Steve, is that we have hundreds of people come out to these screenings. Tonight I'm in Los Angeles. I was here last night. Tonight we're going to be screening for about 700 people. And you will see so many different stakeholders come together, not only to watch the film, but importantly to engage in dialogue after the film. And I'm talking about school board members, district superintendents, administrators, educators, parents, and students coming together. And then even more broadly, just concerned citizens uh, coming out and engaging in dialogue and feeling empowered to start making changes in their communities. And so um, I think that this is a film, Race to Nowhere, that is resonating with millions of people. And, um, and my hope is that in beyond the awareness that it's raising and the dialogue that it's inspiring, that it's going to create the political will to transform what we're doing in education today. And so um, what else can I tell you about that? Um, I think that it's important because this is a film that's giving students, educators, and parents a voice in the education dialogue that's going on in this country. And I think those voices are often the last voices that we hear from in the larger dialogue, um, in the dialogue that we're hearing you know, in big media today. And, so, and I think those are critical voices. Vicki, I'm going to ask you if you can to speak as loudly as is reasonable. Uh, the telephone bridge kind of means your volume is a little bit lower. I've sure. lowered my volume. Okay, I'm sorry. That's great. I've lowered my volume. And those of you who are having difficulty hearing, just raise the volume slider down in the audio area. And hopefully I won't uh, drown you out. I'm trying to keep my volume reasonably low. Um, so have you seen Waiting for Superman? I have. And and are there easy ways? Yes, I have, Steve. Are there easy ways for you to kind of draw comparisons between the two films? You know, I think the films are very different. Um, I, what I'll say is that I think Waiting for Superman highlights some issues that I think are generally um, in the public consciousness, if you will. But they. Um, as compared to Race to Nowhere, tend to place blame in certain places. And I think the solution proposed is largely focused on charter schools. I think to the extent there are many documentaries out there right now examining education, I think it's all contributing to the dialogue. And that's so very important. Our film is really different because it's taking an inside look at the lives of students and teachers in a system that's dominated by testing and pressure to perform and compete. And so um, I think the films are very different. And importantly, Race to Nowhere is the film that is empowering all the different stakeholders to get involved, to contribute to the dialogue, and to be part of the change that we need. So one of the things that was interesting for me, we're not going to rehearse the Waiting for Superman uh, issue here at any length. But one of the interesting things for me at Waiting for Superman was I felt like there were several red herrings kind of uh, 
paths that it went down that weren't really core issues that it that it gave the perception were core issues. And I, uh, your film actually screened here locally in my area, and I talked to a number of people who who watched it, and many of them had this response, uh, sort of immediate response of. Um, that they felt like the hard work message they didn't agree with. And let me tell you quickly what that was, and, then, and I'm sure you have an answer for it. But their feeling was that it wasn't hard work. It was hard work in the wrong areas that was stressful. And that they, they're very anxious for their kids to be doing things that are interesting enough that they want to work hard. And how do you draw this distinction between Absolutely. sort of rigor and stress? Right. So to me, Steve, rigor is the pursuit of inquiry. And I think right now in our test-driven system, that's not necessarily what we have. We have a great deal of pressure to do a lot more of what we've always done um, and to prepare kids for tests. And whether they're the race to the top tests or the AP exam, so much of what's happening in our schools and our classrooms is about preparation for the test. And, and I think also that part of what's um, driving the pressure and the stress that we're seeing both on educators and on our young people is this sense that in order to prepare young people for their futures, we need to do more of what we've always done. I think that we need to completely transform what we're doing in education today and so that you have an education system that is in fact developing critical thinkers, problem solvers. We're not at all suggesting that we don't want young people to work hard and to engage deeply with the material that they're studying, but I don't think that's what you have today in this quantity-driven model. And I also think you know, much as we want our kids to succeed and compete in the adult world, that doesn't mean that in order to get there, it's a good idea to have young people going to school for seven or eight hours a day and then coming home and switching gears another five to six times to prepare for class the next day. I think in many cases we are asking young people to put in more hours than they're expected to in college, and we need to remember that there is an impact um, on these bodies and minds that are still growing and developing. And um, so I, I think it is about changing what's happening in our classrooms and our schools, making the learning more relevant and engaging and um, and child-centered. Um, and moving away from a quantity-driven model, there are only so many hours a day that young people can uh, can absorb information, and then there needs to be some time to process that. And then we need to remember that there are lots of other life experiences from which young people grow and develop, and um, and those skills that are just developed sitting at a desk all day in school, and then. Uh, more homework at night doesn't necessarily allow for the time to develop other important skills. So we're going to do if it's okay. So we're not suggesting at all that the bar be lowered. No, Sorry. No, no. Uh, um, I'm glad you finished. So I want to drill down on several of the sort of themes in the movie, but before I do so, I want to give you a chance to tell a little bit about your story uh, and your background because you come at this from a slightly different angle, right? In terms of my personal background or my family story, well, I'll, I'll just start in by saying and this film started several years ago when I had two daughters who were in middle school, and I started to see the toll that was being taken both on my kids and on our family from what I saw as a quantity-driven model, and at the same time, I was tra uh, questioning the quality of the education. And as I started to speak with students, educators, parents, and experts across the country, what I found is that you know we have an epidemic of young people who are anxious, depressed, sleep deprived, and checked out, and many who are arriving in college in the workplace unprepared. And so I knew there was an important story to tell, and uh, I thought that turning to the power of the media to bring people together and raise awareness and dialogue um, would be a first step forward for all of us. So the uh, the movie certainly produced a lot of uh, discussion with the friends that I saw it with. Uh, I think those of you who are making comments in the chat are going to experience the same thing as well. It's a great conversation starter. And there are some moments where everybody I was sitting around me kind of gasped. Uh, and Vicki, there are two very specifically. One was the statistic about the UC system and remediation. Do you want to rehearse that quickly? 
Right. Well, I think the statistic that is shared by Dr. Pope in the film is that roughly 40% of students who arrive in the UC system and the California state system, you have to look at both, are unprepared to do college work and actually have to take remedial classes just to be where they should be as college students. And then someone in the chat has mentioned. And, and I think that number, Steve, um, Steve there's, there's a lot of research out there also. Um, and I don't have it at my fingertips right now, but that number is a number that is being seen nationwide. I think it resonated with a lot of us just because it um, we, we we knew it anecdotally, but to hear it clarified in that way was was very good. Someone in the chat has mentioned the statistic about the the AP bio teacher who cut his homework in half and actually saw an increase in the score. And I'd forgotten that, but yes, same response. Right. And one of the reasons for that, I mean, I, I can't speak specifically to his class and that anecdotal piece of information that he shared, but one of the things that there is a great deal of research both on how the brain works and on the need for sleep and what happens when young people are sleep deprived. And so I think there's been a much greater correlation shown between uh, an adequate night's sleep and test scores than between homework and test scores. And so there are a number of AP classes being taught at different schools that are being taught without any homework, where the young people are in class engaged for that hour of class, and um, where they're not necessarily going home to hours of homework. And by the way, Steve, there are schools, and I'm sure you and your audience are aware of this, that have moved away from the AP program. And that's not to say that they're lowering the bar, but rather you know, the AP classes are about preparing for a test. And so when you move away from that and you move away from the extrinsic GPA boost that so many kids are um, receiving as a result of taking this test, then you can really uh, design and develop classes that are intended to develop critical thinking skills, problem solving skills, and all the skills that our young people are going to need um, in their future. So the, the title of the movie uh, seems to come from a quote from a young man who says the, the words race to nowhere. Did did that resonate so well That's with right. Race to the Top that it was just like it had to be the title, or did you even realize the connection? No. Well, so Steve, let me just say this: the film was named Race to Nowhere before Race to Top uh, became the new name for uh, what was No Child Left Behind. And so it is, you know, something that one of the students said our previous working title was slipping behind, and it's just not the message that we wanted to convey. And it, you know, it was powerful for us because the students said it. Um, and so it's just been kind of serendipitous that it's worked out to be um, you know, this uh, contrasting message to the current policies that are driving so much of our public education. Well, I just I, I an amazing bit of serendipity there. Um, I also noticed that the movie the movie subtitle is The Dark Side of America's Achievement Culture. And for me, sort of the shadow story through the movie was this isn't necessarily just about students. Right. Right. It's a larger cultural issue, absolutely, if that's what you're referring to. It was. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that what's happened is our uh, schools have become kind of a microcosm of what's happening in our broader culture. So is there a part and so, go and ahead. so I'll just say with respect to that, sorry, no, 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 go on. There's a little delay, Steve. I know. I'm sorry. There's a little bit of a lag. So the moment I think you're done and I start to speak, I talk right over you. Please go ahead, and then I'll ask another question. No, I was just going to address the tagline for the film. Again, you know, I wish we had quotes around the word achievement because I think um, it's not really achievement that uh, we're not against achievement. It's achievement as it's currently being defined. There's a question in the chat about finding screenings. I've just put a link to the website page for the screenings up so that you can look. Uh, and there's, there's so much material at the website. There's a good 50-page uh, resource facilitation resource booklet you can download uh, for those who are screening the movie. There's all kinds of great material on the website. Um, the, the other moment in the movie where people really responded and reacted was the guy from the Blue Man School. Have other people told you that that really stands out to them? 
Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And we weren't looking to put out there, you know, there are a handful of schools and probably more than a handful that are moving in a more innovative direction right now. And a number of those schools are featured in our longer facilitation guide that should be up on the website in a couple of weeks. You just referred to our shorter, web, uh, shorter facilitation guide. But in any case, we wanted people to um, leave the film feeling hopeful and as if there, you know, there are models out there. Um, but again, this isn't about promoting a one-size-fits-all approach. I think that's um, created many of the issues that we're seeing today. And so um, where I think that we really need to transform education in some pretty big ways, um, I also think that change is going to look different in specific communities. But absolutely, people love Matt Goldman and, and love what he says in the film about the need for change. It was as though the screen visibly brightened when he was on. Yes. So this, this, you brought us to a very interesting question, which is the acknowledgement of different kinds of solutions in different places. How do you create a culture around learning that encourages or is willing to accept different kinds of solutions? Hmm. Well, I, you know, here's what I think. I think um, we need to um, embrace an education system, first of all, that where we have equitable funding. Okay, that, that's the first thing. Um, I think that we need a paradigm shift in all of our schools and layers of change are needed. Um, we need to decrease the amount of competition. Um, that we see in schools. You know, when we talk about competition, that for me implies winners and losers. And that doesn't work in education. It doesn't serve the students and it doesn't serve any of us to have young people who lose in this, you know, in the education system, right? Um, I think that one way also for, you know, I think change is going to be different based on the communities, but I think that there are some big picture concepts that work well for all students, right? I think um, having moving away from a test-driven system to one where there is more authentic assessments, um, where we recognize the developmental the developmental needs of children and the individual strengths, and we build on those strengths of individual children. Um, I think there are a number of schools around the country where the actual school day has been restructured. And so not only have they moved to block schedules, but you've got some schools that are entirely project-based and integrated. And so rather than a traditional fragmented school day in high school where students are taking five to seven classes, you've got students who maybe are only studying three things at a time. And so therefore able to dig deeply. Uh, I think that um, we need to, as a culture, examine uh, teaching as a profession and, uh, and the way that teachers are developed in this country and uh, compensated and, importantly, how they spend their day. Because unlike so many other professionals in this country, there's very little time for teachers to work with colleagues, to collaborate, um, to spend time preparing for the classes. They spend so much of their time in the classroom, you know, maybe seeing five to seven different classes a day with 25 to 30 students, uh, there's very little time to develop relationships with students, which I think is also just a key uh, to moving forward in terms of developing students who are engaged in their learning. In any case, I, I don't know if I've answered your original question, Steve. You did, and it's a tricky issue. And those who are, there are lots of notes flying by in the chat. Those who are interested in some of these themes, Jennifer Fox's uh, interview a couple of weeks ago on your child's strengths is probably a good one to listen to in this regard. And I also really think that the Ben Daly interview from High Tech High, um, as well as the DiMartino and Walk interviews yeah. on personalized high schools and the um, Coalition for Essential Schools, the Ted Sizer material, is, is going to fit well into these kinds of conversations. Um, so we talked a little bit about the college issue. No, Steve, it's interesting you bring up. Go ahead. Sorry. You know, I was just going to say it's interesting you raise High Tech High. That is one of the schools that's featured in the longer facilitation guide, along with Coalition for Essential Schools, along with um, 
I, it'll come to me. Just give me a second. But there are a handful of schools, and I'm sure that we can all learn a great deal by looking at these models of innovation um, that are happening in communities across the country. So will we watch the film. So you just asked me a question. Well, I didn't. I didn't. Well, I'm, I'm going to go in a different direction just for a moment. We watched the film with some friends who are chartered school uh, proponents. We watched the film with some friends who are homeschoolers and some who are public school uh, parents. And the homeschool parents were the most vocal. And one of the questions that they said they really wanted me to ask you was, did, did any of this change your perception of homeschooling, if you had a perception? And um, do you, uh, are you feeling as though some of the reasons that people have homeschooled are now uh, becoming sort of larger national issues? And is that a positive? Well, so I, I absolutely know that there is a trend in terms of homeschooling and unschooling. And as a parent, I can say that I 100% understand why those who choose to homeschool do it. Um, I don't think, again, I don't think it's the solution for every family. And as a society, I think that we need to have, you know, a valuable, a, a good education system, a good public education system that serves all children. And so I think that's part of the complexity with education, Steve, is that we don't have just one uniform system, right? We have charter schools and public schools, independent schools, home schools. Um, and so it's, it's challenging because we can't just adopt a new math curriculum and implement it tomorrow, right? Um, but no matter what your personal choice is for your children, we need to remember that not everyone has a choice. And as a society, I think we all benefit from having a um, viable public education system. Okay, so uh, we did talk about. But I, I think the homeschool parents. Steve, here's what I want to say. I think the homeschool parents and even to some extent the Waldorf school parents, I think they feel validated by this film, right? Um, because that's a lot of the issues that are highlighted in Race to Know are the reason um, that parents have made other choices. Yes, they were very quick to say, to say, we've been saying this for years and years. They were also very quick to, to express appreciation for the dialogue happening in a way that supported some of what they feel like they'd been saying but had been kind of looked down upon for. Right, exactly. So I think, it, as, as I just said, I think it does validate them. Okay, so we talked about... I think ahead. this film, Steve, gives people permission. I'm sorry, I think this film gives people finally permission to say um, what they've known for a long time, but what hasn't necessarily been out in the open and discussed. So we talked about college, and I think those are some of the, the striking scenes, especially the woman who is the admissions officer or the representative who sort of feels like she's harmed the students, and almost the John Taylor Gatto moment of uh, regret. Uh, and the line that stood out for me was that college is big business. Have have people talked about that? Have you have you uh, refined that message at all? Absolutely. Well, no. I, I think that there is recognition that college is big business, and there is a lot of money behind you know the big marketing machine. And um, you know, so our message, to the extent that we're educating parents and schools is that there is a right fit college for every student as long as everybody stops buying into this idea that your child is only going to be successful if you attend one of the 50 schools you know, listed in U.S. News and World Report. And I, I think there has been a movement. There are lots of resources, as you probably know, on the website around colleges that have moved away from or at least reduced their reliance on the standardized tests. Um, and so, you know, yes, I think that there is recognition that college is big business, and that the media also drives so much of the fear, both around college and around, you know, how we as a country are faring in terms of our education system. So you also focus a fair amount on homework, and we've had some uh, different sessions on this, and and especially Kathleen Cushman. Who, who talks about deliberate practice and certain forms of homework. Have you got a, a good model you feel makes sense for what kind of homework is good homework? Uh, well, I think the kind of homework that works best is homework that is driven by the students and is longer term in nature. 
Um, and I think homework policies and practices in our schools that respect the research, I think that's an important starting place. I think we have to ask every time there's a homework uh, assignment whether it is um, whether it's valuable. Is is there you know is there some academic or other benefit to the homework? And another. And so again, Steve, it's one of these cases. We're not saying no homework. We're saying the right amount of homework at the right time and make sure that it's meaningful. Yeah, I love that message and. Um, and, and so did the people I watched it with. And I just want to tell your listen, tell your listeners that um, within that facilitation guide that is on the website, there are about four pages dedicated to homework. There have been lots of books written about this. Um, there are some really valuable suggestions for ways that you can approach this in your schools. And, and certainly, if you're having Alfie Conan, you know he's been talking about this uh, for a long time. And for me, you know, something that I've just reflected on is that as adults, we have a choice at the end of our workday whether to bring work home and continue to work on it. But we're not giving so many young people a choice, and we have to look at the the cost of the homework, right? So if homework is assigned in elementary school and it's excessive at a time when the research is very clear that there's no academic value to the homework, we run the risk of turning kids off to learning in school. And so the outcome doesn't justify. Um, the assignment, in my judgment, in elementary school. Well, and there's another tie here because one of the other themes of the movie is cheating, and it feels as though if homework is graded and it's and it's seen as another form of performance, it's probably likely to lead to cheating. And the statistics there were pretty stunning. That's right. That's right. And the highest percentage of students who are cheating are the college-bound students. And um, yeah, it, it, that was actually one of the most surprising things that I learned along the way. Also, um, was the amount of cheating that's going on. And you know, if you read, I don't know if you've read Nurture Shock, Poe Bronson's book, but you know, in some ways, he reminds us, and research reminds us, that we, as adults, teach our kids at a very young age to cheat. And so, if you know, tying the homework and the cheating together, think about the reading logs that might be assigned in kindergarten when your average five or six year old is not capable of maintaining a reading log independently. And I think at that point the parents, many parents, um, just want to get through the material and will help their child write anything at that point. So at a very young age I think we're encouraging cheating around homework, for example. So there's Which is why one of the suggestions in the guide is let's eliminate the punitive consequences to not doing homework, right? The value in the homework should be the preparation for the next class and the learning that takes place. And that is a natural consequence. If you don't do it, you won't be prepared for the next class, right? You miss out on the learning opportunity rather than that you're just doing it to avoid the punishment. So there's homework, and, uh, and related to that, I felt was cheating. Um, and then there was the the theme of uh, drugs and stimulants to be able to get things done. That was kind of stunning to me. Um, and then the counter to that is play. So you spent a fair amount of time on play. Do you want to talk about that? Oh, sure. Well, I think we spent some time on the film in terms of play as well as the importance of downtime for. Our older children, and just that you know, play is children's work. It's how they work things out. It's how they make sense of the adult world. And when we take that away, I think not only are there potential health consequences, but we deprive them again of valuable life experience from which they learn. You know, and I would say that you know, looking ahead to adolescence, it, and maybe it's not play, but maybe it's just downtime. It's time to. Um, Process what you've learned that day. Time to have other experiences outside of school, and whether that's having a job or doing chores around the house or participating in your community, those are all experiences from which young people grow and learn. And so we have to remember that it's not only learning that takes place at school and sitting at a desk doing homework that's important to young people. There is a moment in the film where you talk about sort of the constant coaching that the kids get. And I've always coached my own kids in soccer. I was never a great soccer player nor a great soccer coach, but for me it was 
if somebody needs to do it, I'm going to do it to spend time with my kids. But it always bothered me that, that parents would yell continuously at their children while they were in the game, telling them every move to make. And I saw this larger parallel when you do this yeah. thing on coaching about how they just don't have any time to make their own mistakes or figure things out on their own. That's right. No, that's right. And I think that, you know, the parents are on the sidelines in so many of our kids' activities, whether it's coaching them through the homework or coaching them on the sidelines of a soccer game. And I, w I want to say this is coming from a good place, Steve, right? Everybody wants their kids to succeed, and they feel like they don't have a choice but to support them and to um, help them find their passion, if you will, and develop their resume at a very young age. And what our film is advocating for is actually the opposite of that. We really want individuals who are independent and creative, and we don't get there by doing their homework, hiring an army of tutors, or standing on the sidelines and telling them every move to make. And, and you're absolutely right. One of the most important messages I think I'd love to see parents and educators take away from this is we want to give young people room to make mistakes. That's when real learning occurs. And we don't want to raise a generation that believes they need to be perfectionists or that are afraid to make mistakes and take risks. I mean, some of the greatest innovation in this country has, has come from you know, lots of trial and error. And right now what we're hearing from industry is that young college graduates are coming in and they want to know the answer. They want to know, you know how many paragraphs to write. Um, they're not critical thinkers. They're not creative. They're not problem solvers. And they're afraid to make a mistake. Vicki, there's a really uh, sort of lovely thread in the movie as well about family. Not just, well, in large part because your family is highlighted and you're, and you're sort of so open and honest and transparent about your family, but also there's this recognition of reading time and meals and the kinds of activities that families do together. Um, that felt unique to me. Have other people commented to you that they really appreciated that part of the movie? Um, not necessarily. So you're the first probably that is commenting on that. But um, I think you know there is research that supports what is the number one contributor to academic performance. Actually, having meals together as a family contributes a great deal. In fact, we have some research on that on the website that having more than five meals together as a family each week actually um, have been correlated with better performance in school. And so, and for me, um, you know, that time is the time when you come together and you're developing a relationship with your kids. You hear about what goes on in one another's day, and so um, we get so caught up in our 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week lives uh, that we need to be reminded about what's important and how to find some balance. Well, I. I but it's not something that most people comment Isn't that interesting? I would have assumed that it was. Um, how did your family react to being so sort of visibly um, exposed? Well, Steve, when I set out to make this film, my family was never going to be in the film. And for the first year of production, we were not filming my family. It was only about a year into the production when we had a roughly one-hour film that some of the people on our film team really leaned on me to share my family's story as the through line in the film. And uh, we spent a lot of time looking at other documentaries to determine if that was a good call. And as you may or may not have noticed in the film, one of my daughters is really not in the film. In fact, I think some people think that I have just two children. And so she wasn't comfortable. In the beginning, she was comfortable with the cameras. And then as she got a little bit older and in high school, she didn't want the attention. And, uh, and so far, the rest of my family, everybody's very supportive. I, the, even that daughter who didn't want to be on camera is 100% behind the message of the film. And, uh, and I hope that that continues. As, as a parent, you, know, you want to make sure, first and foremost, that um, you're making good choices on behalf of your children, right? because they're still young people. But I will say, if anything, it's been empowering for all three of my kids, and particularly um, for the one daughter, Jamie, who you saw highlighted in the film. She has just grown so much as a person. And for her to realize that she wasn't the only one struggling with these issues has um, and it's really made her feel better about it, because she knows that so much of her experience was 
um, not only the normal adolescent pressure, but also the unhealthy environment that is in many of our schools today. So certainly, and so I think she has a much better perspective as a Certainly, I left the movie uh, really feeling affection for Jamie and you know uh, appreciating her circumstance and and appreciating her willingness to be a part of the movie. I think the other person that we leave the film really feeling for is Devin and and her family. Um, yeah. you, do you, why don't we kind of close the interview portion with you talking a little bit about uh, that particular trend and the concern, and then we'll move to Q&A. And there have been a lot of comments in the chat, so I know we're going to get lots of questions here. But, but in particular, Devin's family and their willingness okay. to talk about it. Well, and I, Steve, I just want to thank you for raising that as a question, because I think it's the topic in the film that so many want to avoid. And it's, it's obviously very hard, and I think her family shows great courage and trust in sharing Devin's story. And I know it's really important to Jane and to Scott, her husband, um, that they continue to share Devin's story um, so that other parents are a little more aware of um, the pressures their children may be feeling and which may not necessarily um, be apparent on the surface. And so I think, you know, as a parent, what I'll say is that Suicide is a very complicated issue, um, but what we do know, and I don't want to hold myself out as an expert on su suicide, but what we do know is that depression rates are rising and that depression can lead to suicide and suicide rates are rising. And, and they're rising a great deal, particularly amongst teenage girls. And I think we have to pay attention to that, as Dr. Madeline Levine says in the film. And um, I think it's important as a parent, one of the messages that I like to deliver is it's so important that we see our kids and let them know we see them as so much more than a grade and their homework assignments so that when they're struggling, they're more likely to come to us. If, um, if they believe their value is only in how they last performed, I think when a child is struggling, they may not feel comfortable coming to us as parents. And so um, I think we have to talk to our kids. I think that's the big message for parents. I think every parent who sees this film can't leave without being impacted by Devin's story. Vicki, thank you so much. We're going to move to Q&A. Uh, there, there have been an, um, roughly about 60 live listeners to the show, and we typically get some multiple of that who listen to the Great. recording. But of the 60, this has been a high chat session. <laughs> it's just flown by. So if you've asked a question in the chat and I missed it, I hope you will post it again. You can also use the hand with the green up arrow to raise your hand and ask a question. Vicki has to leave. We're going to let her go just a couple minutes before 6 o'clock because she has a hard stop. But let's go to Q&A now. The first question I saw, uh, and it wasn't the, the earliest question, but the one I uh, have seen most recently, Adrian asks, how do we move from talking about this to shifting school and district behavior? Right. So I think that it's important, and this is what one of the things that the film is doing, is bringing people together in the room at the same time. I think it's very important to have all the stakeholders in the room and then to look around the room, form alliances with one another, and become advocates for change. And so I'll just tell you a quick story. One of the school districts in the Bay Area that we screened at a few times, uh, I left one of the screenings with a superintendent, and he, I asked him, what would you like to see come out of this? And he said, I would like to see those 500 parents who are here tonight show up in my office next week and tell me that they support me in making these changes that will better serve young people. And then just a few weeks ago, the candidates for the school board in that district were having a forum. And many parents and educators turned up to say, have you seen the film and what's your position on these issues? And so I think we have to remember we actually have a lot more power than we realize. And it's much easier for us to work in partnership with our schools. And I think when you bring educators and parents in the room together, everybody finally realizes we're actually all on the same page. We want the same things for children. And it's much easier to move forward. And I also just want to say that it's been very hard for people as well as schools to make changes by themselves. It feels like no one wants to go first. And so this film is having the impact that just last night we screened in Pacific Palisades and the head of the school got up and said, look, we've got four other neighboring schools that have screened the film. 
and all of us want to make these changes together. It's less scary for a school to go out on a limb and start innovating if their neighboring schools are doing the same. And by the same token, I feel that applies to parents as well. It feels like you're going, you know, taking a big risk to be the only one that steps off this treadmill. But when you're in a community and you look around the room and you find that there is actually a silent majority wanting to make these changes, it's much easier. And you feel more supported. So there's, there are questions in the chat about screenings. What would someone do if they wanted to set up a screening? So right now, um, the best thing that I can tell people for screenings is to contact our office. There's a form on the website. And we are doing the very best that we can to bring this film to every community where there is interest. There are also some large distributors that are now reaching out to us. And so we're looking for ways to be very efficient and um, to add staff to our office so that we can be responsive. The goal is to bring communities nationwide together to see the film and then use that guide that you referenced, Steve, to engage in the dialogue and to create a process towards change. So I put a link to the screening form in the chat for those who are interested. Thank you. And uh, they can click on it. Uh, Deb asks, what's next for Vicki? <laughs> um, so what's next is, you know, my passion is around this cause. And so we are still engaged in some production on the film. We just cut a, an op-ed, a video op-ed piece for the New York Times. We're hoping they put it up. It's, it's an op-ed piece on the missing voices in the education dialogue in this country and basically represents educators and education experts as well as parents and students. And uh, so right now I'm very much focused on this film and getting it out to the widest possible audience. And then uh, what will be next after this is another film. So if you have a question for Vicki, you can raise your hand with the hand in the green up arrow, that icon at the bottom of your participant window. If you've put a question in the chat and I didn't see it, and there has been so much that it would be easy for me to miss it, I hope that you'll post it there again. Um, have you seen any specific sort of tangible ways, Vicki, that communities facilitate the dialogue uh, when they get together? Are there certain things that they, that they can do right off the bat that help to kind of uh, bring the barriers down a little? Well, I, I think it's important when schools screen the film to set up a safe environment where everybody's voice is welcome and where someone who's facilitating sets up the evening in such a way that, um, that everybody knows we're not solving this tonight. This has you know, been a long time in making, but that we are committed to the process for change. And some of the things don't have to you know, be year-long dialogues. right? We need to remember these are children, and there are many educators in this country who know what it takes to provide a meaningful, relevant education and one that you know, honors the whole child. Uh, so it's not something that requires technology to solve, rather I think political will. And so what I'd say works best in these dialogues is not to have a panel that is going to speak at the audience, but really you want to hear from the greatest number of people in your community. And then what you find most of the time is that everyone really is on the same page and that uh, everybody finds a place of connection in this film. So I'm going to make a little bit of a call here. We're not getting any more questions in the chat, although there's still a lot of dialogue. And I'm thinking that you might actually appreciate having a 10-minute break before you have to leave at 6 o'clock. So I think I'd like to finish. I really want to stay in touch with you. I think uh, you probably uh, don't have any idea of just how much what you're talking about has resonates with the the interview series that we've done. And we've had Sir Ken Robinson on and Dan Pink and Seth Godin and a variety of people who, who are giving messages very similar to yours. So I'm going to reach out to you and, and try and stay in touch Absolutely. and hope that we can find uh, other ways to su support and engage with what you're doing. And um, the, the final question that people are asking is, is there any way this is going to be online? those who are in different countries who are not, who are not able to see it? Yeah, I, I don't foresee that right now. That may come up in the future, but here's what I want to say about that. I'm um, very protective of the young people who are in this film who shared their stories, my daughter included, Devin's mother included. And I think it's much more powerful seen in a community setting and then down the road on DVD in your home. 
Um, I don't think it will be something that will ever make downloadable on the internet. But you know, time will tell on that front. It, I would like to say to your international listeners, you know, we have requests from about 30 different countries. We are scheduled to screen in Shanghai, in Singapore, in New Delhi, in Canada. And uh, so what we're seeing is a larger, a larger global issue. And um, so the film will absolutely be accessible. We've translated it in both Spanish and Mandarin. And as there is demand in other countries, we're absolutely open to translating in additional languages. And I just want to say to you, Steve, because you raised the, some of the other um, experts in this area, like Sir Ken Robinson and Daniel Pink, I think it's so important. And what I'm hoping comes out of this film is that all of the experts who have been speaking about these issues for the last 10 to 30 years start coming together because I think together we're much more powerful, right? And then, you know, obviously including the parents and the educators and the students in that dialogue. And I think that's what it's going to take people like Diane Rabbit, who you said you had on the show last week. Um, we need to all work together to bring about the changes that all of the people you've mentioned are advocating for. Well, I have some ideas. But we're going to let you go. So uh, there's a lot of okay. thanks going on in the Thank you, Steve. I'm really we're getting a lot of thanks in the chat room. There are people clapping. You can't see any of this, but it's greatly appreciated. Uh, you take the rest of uh, this time to do whatever you need to do. We appreciate your coming, and we'll let you go. Okay, Steve. Okay, Steve, I'm just going to leave you with one parting thought for your audience. And this is a very small thing. I don't know what you it sounds like you're using the social media. We are trying very hard to get people to take action, right? Everybody wants to know what can they do. I think the very first thing that everyone can do that is quite low impact is to go to our Facebook page and like it. I think if we can get hundreds of thousands, if not millions there, it goes to showing that there's strength in numbers desiring these kinds of changes. And I think from there we can start influencing policies both in our communities as well as at the state and national level. And I know it's a very small thing. Uh, and somebody today that was at a screening asked me to go into more detail about the Facebook issue. And I just think, you know, look at our president was elected largely because he used these social media tools that are so readily available and easy to access. So I would just encourage all of your listeners, if you found this film or this conversation somewhat meaningful to take a look at the trailer. Join us on Facebook. There's always a conversation there. Join us on Twitter and help spread the word because I think that's what it's going to take. There's safety in numbers. Thank you, Vicki. Jackie put the link up to Facebook. You, We're Steve. all going to go there. Have Thank a great you. evening. Thanks, everyone. Take care. You too. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, thanks everybody. I hope you feel okay about me letting her go early. I thought that was uh, really wonderful to hear from her, and, um, and and I'm sure we made a difference for her by giving her a few minutes more. Um, I've pulled up. The, if you haven't seen the movie, um, I know it's hard to to indicate that you like it, but if you did like uh, what Vicky had to say, I'm sure she would really appreciate the support. Um, thanks for coming tonight. Uh, thanks to Illuminate and to Learn Central. Thanks to Microsoft Bing uh, and to all of you for being a part of the show uh, in the series. Most appreciated. Have a great night.